Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that your mercy is new for us every morning, that you are the great provider, that you have given us this day to live, and you have given us your word so that we might know you. We ask that you would open our hearts and our minds to you and open your word to us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. There is a little running joke amongst the ministers and some of the staff of Holy Cross uh, that Chris and I have the reputation of being a little long-winded when it comes to preaching. Uh, Trevor and Jonathan usually keep it pretty tight, you know, and uh, they keep it clean, but you never know. With Chris or me, we've been known to flirt with the 30-minute mark sometimes, which if you're from the Baptist church, that's nothing, I know, but uh, that's even... That's even less than uh, compared to Jesus, when we think about Jesus. Jesus preached a little too long a couple of times in his ministry. And when I say a little too long, the first time was for the whole day, which is our gospel passage this morning, and the second time was for three days. And the lesson we learn from Jesus is that if you preach too long, you're going to have to end up feeding everybody. And the first time he had to feed 5,000, and the second time he had to feed 4,000, and that was just the men, right? So I promise you I won't go too long, of course, unless somebody has a couple fish and some buns amongst our worship staff here, then this could get really interesting. But otherwise, I will keep it short. Uh, I also want to point out that Jesus always gets shortchanged when it comes to this miracle. One of the many, many pitfalls of uh, misogynistic cultures of the ancient Near East was that they only counted the men. They always say that he fed 5,000 men in this miracle. But if you count the women and children, which I assure you we do here at Holy Cross, we count everybody. In fact, during this quarantine, while you've been worshiping at home, we have been counting your pets as well. So <laughs> attendance has been great this whole time, and so there's always a silver lining. Uh, but uh, if you counted the women and the children that day, then the crowd that Jesus fed was much larger. Some of the scholars even estimate it was as many times as four times the size of the men. So that's closer to 20,000 people. I just want to make sure that Jesus gets all the credit that he's due. So it's a much more impressive miracle when we think about the size of the crowd. But what is this miracle really about? It's an important one to be sure because we know that this is the only miracle outside of the resurrection that all four gospel writers recount for us. So it's just this miracle in the resurrection that they all have consistently across their stories. So we know it had a huge impact on the early church where they wanted to make sure to include it. And on one level, it affirms that Jesus was obviously the guy to have over when you're having a dinner party, right? You know, this miracle, along with the wedding at Cana, proves that you never had to worry about running out of food or wine when Jesus was there, when the party really got going. He was like a walking Costco, Jesus. But um, <laughs> aside from that amazing thought, uh, what, what does this miracle really say to us? One of the definitions of stress that I have heard is that stress is what you feel when you think your needs will not be met. Stress is what you feel when you think your needs will not be met. I think it's safe to say that on a global scale, 
we have been under a lot of stress. To say that the past three months have been stressful is an understatement, right? There are so many things that have been thrown into question in our lives as a result of this COVID-19 pandemic, and now as a result also of uh, the racial tensions that have been just boiling under the surface in our country. Our health needs, right? We don't want to get sick, and we certainly don't want to die. Our relational and social needs. Uh, we, if you're a hugger, then you've certainly been feeling the social distancing, I'm sure. I was talking to one of my friends who is a physically affectionate person, and it's been killing him that he hasn't been able to hug people. Uh, and then there's also all of our economic needs between the unemployment and businesses going under. And then obviously those who feel like their, their needs for justice aren't being met. So many times in these past few months, I have found myself asking, how will these needs be met? I've been crying out to the Lord for that, and it has resulted in stress. Now, the big idea of this passage is one that we have seen throughout Scripture from the very beginning all the way to the very end. God repeats it again and again and again because it's one that we forget again and again and again. We start to believe the circumstances around us instead of the promises of God. And we begin to fear that our needs won't be met, right? We begin to stress out. Another word for this, quite frankly, is unbelief. We forget God's promises. And we forget Journey's epic anthem from 1981. You all know it. They told us very clearly, don't stop believing, right? <laughs> Hold on to that feeling. But we do stop. We do. And it, we forget, and it's usually because we do lose that feeling. We start to feel tight. We start to feel the pressure. We can't see our way ahead, so we worry. And we usually do exactly what we see the disciples doing when they are up against a problem that they can't, uh, they can't fix, a need that they can't fulfill. What do they do? They start to try to problem solve. You know, Jesus, you've been preaching too long. It's time to start sending these people away so they can go get something to eat and find a place to stay. It's very reasonable thinking. But Jesus won't send them away. He has not forgotten God's promises to his people. In fact, he is the, the fulfillment of all of God's promises to his people in the flesh. And he wants to remind all of those people that day listening to him and all of us now. This is why the, all of the gospel writers have remembered this story for us. They want us to remember that Jesus is the fulfillment of those promises. God in Christ will provide for all that they and we need. That's the big idea to this passage. And to do that, Jesus says to his disciples, you give them something to eat. That's a very strange thing to say if he's going to show how he provides for our needs. Well, this strange direction that Jesus gives to his disciples accomplishes two things. First, it continues to build on what he's just done. We heard it last week where he had sent out the disciples to minister. 
They had just returned from their mission where they had preached and healed many, is what we learned about last week. And Jesus uh, here continues to foreshadow what he's going to do, what his plan is. His plan is to send them out, to be his messengers of God's grace to the world, to proclaim the good news of forgiveness of sins in the kingdom of God and to make disciples of all nations. So he's foreshadowing, saying, you give them something to eat. The problem here is that the disciples didn't have anything to give. This is the second thing that Jesus does. He highlights the need even more by telling the disciples to feed these people. He's being consistent with God throughout Scripture, where he loves to come through for his people when things seem really impossible. And I'm just thinking of Noah, or Moses in the Red Sea, or Gideon, or David and Goliath, or Daniel in the lion's den, all through Scripture, God loves to have circumstances where it seems like it's impossible. And Luke, in his version of this story, gives us the abbreviated version, really, when we look at the other gospel writers. The other gospels tell us that the five loaves and the two fish that, they, that Luke says they have didn't even belong to them. It belonged to a boy in the crowd. And then it tells us that they actually sat there and thought about what it would take to buy food for this crowd, and it would take a fortune. They didn't have that either. So there was no way they were going to be able to feed this crowd. Jesus has highlighted the need, and by doing so, he has primed everyone, and now they're ready. You can even hear the disciples thinking it would take a miracle to feed this crowd. And that's just what he does. As we've heard, he takes uh, this meager offering of two fish and five loaves, and he breaks it up and gives it to the disciples to give to the people, and everyone is satisfied. And they have 12 basketfuls left over. Jesus doesn't just meet our needs, he exceeds them. It's an awesome display of his power and his compassion for those who are in need. And it's an encouragement to the disciples that he is going to send out. It's an encouragement that he is the one who supplies all that they will need to go out and to bless the world. And I want you to hear today how this story actually meets us in our uncertainty, in our greatest need. As many of you know, my father-in-law, Peter Moore, died on May 30th just recently. And as Kate and I sat with Peter uh, about a week and a half ago, we sat with him in his last days, I was confronted with the fact, more than ever, that none of us has the ability to meet our greatest need. And that is to be saved from death. We cannot stop death for ourselves. And we cannot stop death for our loved ones or for anyone. We cannot meet this, meet this need. And that creates stress. We're confronted with our powerlessness when we're faced with death. The true consequence for the brokenness in this world. It reminds me of the amazing hymn, Rock of Ages. That goes like this. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked I come to thee for dress. 
Helpless, I look to thee for grace. Foul, I, fa- I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. When it comes down to it, all of the things that stress us out, all those things that I mentioned earlier, they all boil down to being afraid to die. If you don't have enough human contact with people, you know, you might get depressed. And if you get depressed, you might never be able to pull out of it. And a part of you dies. It's a death experience. Or if you lose your job, you know, if I lose my job, I won't be able to feed myself or I may not be able to feed my family. And we could go hungry. We could die. If I get COVID-19, obviously I could get really sick and I could die. And if I don't get justice, then I might find myself in a situation that I can't control and someone might accidentally kill me or someone might intentionally kill me because of the hatred in their heart. This is the reality that we're dealing with. All of it boils down to our fear of not being able to stop death. How can the Lord meet that need? I don't want you to be mistaken. Because this is exactly what he sent his disciples out to deal with. And what he sends all of us out to deal with. To deal with the ultimate problem of a broken and dying world. Can you hear him giving that same direction though? You feed them. You stop death. What do we have to offer? What do we have to bring? Like the disciples, I'm confronted with my powerlessness. I've got nothing, frankly, but my sin and my doubt. That's what we have to offer. And the amazing thing, hear this, the amazing thing is that we see Jesus take even that, especially that, and he uses it to feed others, to meet them in the face of death. And that sounds like a crazy statement. How can can he use our sin to bless others. How does that work? Well, we love to talk about transformation in the church, right? We're we're all about transformation, that Jesus brings transformation in our lives. He certainly does. But oftentimes when we think of that word, we think of it kind of from our human understanding, and we often like to think transformation just means a, a sense of improvement. You know, I'm getting better every day, that kind of thinking. But this miracle here points to something far more radical Something far greater when it comes to transformation. The transformation that Jesus works in us and for us and then through us. He takes our very sin, the very place in your life where Satan loves to point at you and shame you with it. Those things that you've thought, that we've thought and done, where the accuser comes and says, I cannot believe you did that. Look how bad you are. You deserve to be rejected for that. You deserve to die for that. Jesus takes those things and he transforms them into blessings for others. How? How can that sin be transformed? How can the sin that's hurt others now become something that is transformed into a blessing for others? I'll tell you. It's because Jesus forgives you right there. He forgives your sin. And now that place of pain is transformed into your testimony. That becomes the place where you glorify him. 
You tell people that this is where I have experienced the power of God's grace. He has met me in my greatest need, the place where I have been perhaps filled with hate for my brother or my neighbor, and he has forgiven me there. And now I testify to his grace there. You know, it may be all sorts of things, but it's where the rubber meets the road in your life, that place where you feel shame, where you feel condemnation from the enemy, where you feel fear, where you want to run and hide, where you feel the stress of your powerlessness. That's where he says to you, you are forgiven. I have paid the price for that, and I've covered it with my blood, and now you are free. It's the hymn we sang at the beginning of this service. The pure of heart, he creates a new heart in us and gives it to us. He takes this nothing offering of ours, our brokenness, he makes it his own, and he replaces it with his life. It's what we hear in John's gospel, in this account of this miracle. The next day, John tells us that Jesus is teaching the crowd, and he says to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. He is the God who creates life out of nothing. He does that with our brokenness and our sin. He makes the very place where we have felt crushed, he makes that the place where we boast in his strength. You point to him there. Jesus saved me there. Jesus forgave me there. And now he is glorified as the one who forgives sinners in that place. The one who gives life to the dead. He's come for the sick and the needy. He has come for the stressed out, for those who cannot feed themselves, for those who cannot meet their own needs or the needs of others. And I want you to hear that Jesus loves you and forgives you in your greatest need. And because of that, now you carry the message of Jesus Christ that he saves. There's no greater hope, there's no greater blessing that you could give to anyone on this earth than to tell them that Jesus Christ saves, that he is the forgiver of sinners, that he's the one who raises the dead. You are living evidence of it. Your basket is now full with the bread of life himself. And so as Jesus told his disciples and all of us, now go and give it to others. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your grace. We thank you that you are the God who transforms our pain, our brokenness, our sin. And you make it now a testimony to your awesome goodness, to your saving power. Lord, that you fill us with yourself, the bread of life, so that we might go and give it away to those who are hurting, to those who are stressed out, to those who are afraid that their needs won't be met. I pray, Jesus, that you would use us to do that. Even in this strange time, this difficult time, especially now, I pray that you would use us to give away 
that awesome grace that you have given us to proclaim you as the bread of life, the one who will raise us all up on the last day. We thank you, Jesus. We give you praise. Amen.